Some choices in life are much more important than others. Choosing between chocolate and vanilla ice cream is not all that significant. Choosing to eat lunch at home or eating out may be a little more significant, but not all that life-changing or dramatic or significant. Some choices are much more important and are more difficult. Just this week, the director of the FBI has come under great criticism because of some choices he had to make. Was he going to reopen the investigation of Secretary Clinton's emails? Was he going to make that public just 11 days before the election? And there has been a lot of responses to the decisions that he has made. As important as that decision is, or many of the decisions that we make, most of them are not life and death situations, where we're actually choosing between life or death, or even more significant, choosing whether someone else lives or dies. Today's text centers upon a life and death decision. The crowd was going to be entrusted with a decision as to whether Jesus was going to be set free or whether he was going to be put to death. Spoiler alert. I'm going to tell you up front what happens. So if you don't want to know and you want to be held in suspense, put your fingers in your ears. But if not, I'm about to announce that the crowd chose to put Jesus to the death. Now, I really don't think that was much of a spoiler alert. I doubt anyone in this room didn't know what the outcome was. But just because we know the outcome doesn't mean that this isn't significant. This is an easy passage of scripture to kind of say, well, I know this, I've heard this for many years, and you just kind of move on. But in actuality, this portion of scripture is immensely important. What I want to focus on this morning is the nature of that decision. What motivated them to make such a choice, to choose Jesus over Barabbas. What does that decision tell us about the crowd? And what lessons can we learn from that decision-making process? All of that coming at the end of the message. The theme is lessons from the crowd's role in the crucifixion of Jesus. But to make sure that we get the lessons right, I want to painstakingly go through the process that is before us because in many ways it's quite intriguing. The background to the crowd's life and death decision, that is the opportunity that was afforded to the crowd to set Jesus free, was not all that unusual. Look with me at Matthew 27, verse 15. Now at the feast... The governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. The opportunity to set a prisoner free was a common practice during the feast of the Passover. Similar to, we might liken it unto the end of a presidential period of service when the president issues a number of pardons. Well, during Passover, it became customary for the governor to release a prisoner to the crowd. The reason for that practice was twofold. First, it was in keeping with Roman policy of respecting local religions. 
Here was an opportunity to show deference to the celebration of Passover. A celebration of grace and deliverance from sin and death. This was also an opportunity for Pilate, who was a foreigner, to remain in favor with the people that he governed. Here was an opportunity for him to show himself to be kind. He was kind of viewed as a rather ruthless and cruel leader. Uh, Here was a way in which he was able to get on the good side, if you will, of the populace. And then on this particular occasion, it was quite significant, for it provided Pilate a way out of this difficult situation that he found himself in, and that he found Jesus to be innocent, but yet was about to condemn him to death. But now he'd be able to pawn it off onto the crowd and have them be the ones that would set Jesus free. The significance of the crowd's decision cannot be overestimated. The crowd was empowered. Their voice would be heard. Their opinion mattered. Their decision would be determinative as far as all earthly decisions can be determinative. Whatever the crowd said was going to happen. Regardless of what the priests wanted, regardless of the verdict that Pilate had just passed down, whatever the crowd said was going to take place, humanly speaking. Their position in history was unique. They had the power to overturn a great injustice that was being perpetrated by the Jewish leaders and the courts. How often is it that we have the opportunity to make right a wrong? How often do we have an opportunity to step in when we know that our government has made the wrong decision to rise up and say, no, that's not what we want to occur, and even more, have our voice heard and have it obeyed and followed. They could right a wrong. They could be an agent for good and moral decency. The crowd was greatly empowered. The second thing I want you to notice is that the crowd's choice was made easy by Pilate. I uh, think there are some many difficult choices that we have to make. Back to the political season, as we are only a few days away, many people are finding it difficult to decide who they want to vote for. Uh, The choices are not what we'd like them to be. They're difficult choices. They are hard choices. But this was not one of those hard or difficult choices. This was an easy choice. It was an obvious choice. Pilate is going to offer the crowd a choice between two prisoners to set free. Either Barabbas or Jesus would be released. Notice verse 17. Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? 
As I said, Pilate made the choice easy for the crowd. It was no brainer. Who should they choose? Should they choose Jesus? Or should they choose Barabbas? Now we're told in verse 16 that Barabbas was a notorious prisoner. He was infamous. You know, as we think of famous, we think about somebody who's well-known. Infamous is a person who's well-known for the wrong reasons. He was well-known to the crowd. He was a scoundrel of scoundrels. According to Acts chapter 3, Peter tells us that he was a murderer. Acts 3.14. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So here is a known murderer. Here is a person who is the worst of the worst. Pilate decides to bring out the scum of the earth and hold him up and say, okay, who do you want? I'm going to release to you one of these two prisoners. Do you want the scum of the earth or do you want Jesus to be released to you? Getting people's choices can be strategic in determining the outcome. For example, one of the jobs that I had many years ago while I was in college in summers and during the college on breaks, I worked in a men's clothing store, Hughes and Hatchers in Reading. I worked in the suit department, selling men's suits. And often, when closing the sale on a men's suit, uh, the man and wife, if she were with him, would want to choose a shirt and tie to go with the suit. Now, I usually worked the very busy seasons. I worked over Christmas break and so on, and the place would be filled. And uh, the manager, of course, wanted to make every cent that he could. And he took us aside as suit salesmen, and he said, Men, you sell the suits. He said, Don't waste your time selling shirts and ties. We have other people doing that. The money to be had is selling suits. So don't waste time selling shirts and ties. So he gave us a strategy. He said, if a customer wants you to help them pick out a shirt and tie, pick out something that is really beautiful, something that looks handsome, goes well together, pick out a very nice, arresting shirt and tie combination. Then pick out one that is okay. And then he said, then pick out one that's hideous. It's awful. It looks terrible. And put the three of them out. And say to them, which one do you like? He said they will immediately pick up the beautiful one and your sale is done. Pick out three good ones and people are going to hem and haw and make a 15-minute decision. You don't want that. Present them with obvious choices. This is what Judas, uh, excuse me, this is what Pilate did. He presented the crowd with an obvious choice. Who do you want to go free? Jesus or Barabbas? Pilate had an agenda. Pilate was fully aware 
of the chief priests, elders, treachery. If you notice in verses 17 and 18, it says, So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? And now the reason for, he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. He knew that it was motivated by the wrong motivations that Jesus was ever put on trial. He could see through it. And it was because he knew that Jesus was innocent, therefore he picked Barabbas to be presented along with Jesus. He was trying to rig the outcome. Make the choice obvious. Therefore, Pilate makes an appeal to the crowd. So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? The they and them is the crowd of verse 15. Pilate did not want to be responsible for Jesus' death. Pilate himself had become convinced of Jesus' innocence after having examined Jesus. In our passage, it doesn't say a lot about Pilate, but in the parallel passages, it does tell us a great deal. And on numerous occasions, Pilate announces Jesus' innocence. He examined him thoroughly. He became convinced that Jesus was innocent. Now verse 19, besides, besides having examined Jesus and determining that Jesus was innocent, besides, verse 19, while he, that is Pilate, was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. So while he's in this court proceeding, his wife has a vision, a dream. And in it, she realizes that Jesus is righteous and should be set free. So she sends word to her husband and says, whatever you do, don't get involved in the crucifixion of this righteous man. So Pilate has that in the back of his mind. Pilate wants to be off the hook. The chiefs, priests, and those agenda is to have put Jesus to death. Verse 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas, Barabbas and destroy Jesus. They wanted to see Jesus die. So those are the two agendas behind the scene. But Pilate is trying to rig this so that Jesus will go free. Who do you want? This notorious scum of the earth Or do you want this righteous man, this doer of good deeds, the worker of miracles, the Christ? Which one do you want? He says to the crowd. So Pilate puts the question to the crowd. Verse 21. Which two do you want me to release for you? To Pilate's amazement and chagrin, the crowd chooses Barabbas over Jesus. Verse 21, and they said, Barabbas. Now, can you picture this scene? Pilate, who has carefully orchestrated this whole event, when it comes down to the moment when he says, which one do you want me to deliver, that the crowd yells, Barabbas. He is taken aback. 
He is shocked. How in the world would this crowd choose Barabbas over Jesus? Pilate then asked the crowd what they expect Pilate to do with Jesus. Pilate is making it clear that only one prisoner is going to be released. Verse 22, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? He is making them stop and think about what they are doing. Who do you want to set free? Barabbas. Okay, what are the implications for Jesus? If I'm setting Jesus free, what do you want me to do with him? Because I'm only setting one person free, so what do you want me to do with Jesus? Verse 22. They all said, let him be crucified. They understood. They got it. They realized what was going to happen. They said, we choose Barabbas. And let Jesus be crucified. Pilate is unhappy with the crowd's decision and confronts the crowd with their unreasonableness. Verse 23. And he said, why? What evil has he done? How can you justify your choice, he is saying to this crowd. How can you choose Barabbas over Jesus? What sense does that make, he says to the crowd. How can you make such an idiotic choice? The crowd is not taken back by the question at all. They do not reconsider their choice. They do not say, oh yeah, now that I think about it, that was kind of dumb. It probably would have been better if we would have said Jesus over Barabbas. Well, let's let's have a do-over. Let's have a mulligan. No, instead... They decide to double down, a phrase we're hearing a lot these days when it comes to decisions and making bad decisions. Instead of people repenting and and, uh, acknowledging the wrong of their decision, they double down. And they double down. Verse 23. Why, what evil has he done? But instead they shouted all the more. They shouted more vigorously. They shouted louder. They became more adamant. They weren't going to back down. When confronted with the fact that they had made a bad decision, they say, all the louder, let him be crucified. Put him to death, says the crowd. Now, Pilate seeks to make them aware of the seriousness of their choice. To make them realize the consequences of their actions. To try to cause them to be sober about this decision that they are making. Of life and death for these two individuals. And so he publicly demonstrates his disapproval of their choice. Verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water 
and washed his hands before the crowd. Okay, so he enters into this symbolic act. He actually gets a basin and brings it out in front of the crowd and starts washing his hands symbolically to saying, I am washing my hands of this man's blood. This is your choice. This is your doing. This is your responsibility. I want nothing to do with this, Pilate is suggesting. Notice at the end of verse 24, his words. I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. Now, he wasn't innocent. For he had pronounced a death penalty on a man who he knew that was to be innocent. But he was trying his best to get him off. And the crowd would have nothing of it. Rather, the crowd just becomes more persistent, more wicked, more evil. For notice their response, verse 25. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Don't worry about it. We'll take full responsibility. We own this. This is our decision. We want Barabbas over Jesus. All that for the background. Now the lessons. What are we to learn from this passage? What are we to ascertain about this crowd's decision? First, we're to learn of the moral indifference of the crowd. The moral indifference of the crowd. We have to ask ourselves this question. What motivated the crowd to choose Barabbas over Jesus? Now hang with me for a moment. When I was preparing this message, I thought of eight different approaches to this passage. And... um, One of them, I was going to talk about the shared guilt, and that's why there's enough guilt to go around, is the title of the message. But the more I worked on it, I said, no, I'm going to go over here. I think this is the focal point of the passage. See, what motivated them? Why would they ask for Jesus to be crucified and Barabbas to be set free? What Did they get out of it? You see, as we think about Judas, Judas was motivated by greed in betraying Jesus and for having Jesus to be crucified. He was paid 30 pieces of silver. He was motivated by greed. We know that the chief priests and elders' role in Christ's death had been motivated by envy. Our text tells us that, and we find that many places in Scripture. Matthew 27, 18, for he knew it was out of envy that they delivered him up. They were jealous of his position and of his authority and of the crowd's acclamations. They were upset that just a few days earlier, the crowd had yelled, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! So they want Jesus to be crucified so that they regain their authority and their power and their position. 
They're motivated by envy. Pilate, we find out in Scripture, is motivated by fear. Fear of the Jewish leaders. Fear of his losing his position in the Roman Empire. John chapter 19, a parallel passage, says this. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And so as much as Pilate is afraid of putting to death an innocent man, he's more afraid of the Jewish leaders and the Roman government. Pilate is afraid if he lets this man off that he's going to get in trouble with the Roman government. And so he's motivated by fear of man. Greed, envy, fear of man. But what motivated the crowd? What did they get out of it? How did their choice benefit them in any way? And the answer to that is none. None. There was nothing in it for them. So why did they do it? Well, we're told in the text, in verse 20, that the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. It was stirred up. It was initiated. The thought process was enabled by the chief priests and elders they were convincing the people to ask Jesus over Barabbas. But what could they have said? What could they have brought to light? How could they have justified? Where is the moral truth that could have convinced the masses that it would have been more righteous to set Judah, uh, Barabbas free than to set Jesus free. Where was that moral compass? Where was that concern for truth? Where was that concern for doing right? Answer, it didn't exist. It didn't exist. They didn't care about truth. They didn't care about morality. They did not care about absolutes. There was a crowd mentality that was willing to accept whatever the majority wanted. Is that so different from our day today? Are people really interested in truth? Are we really interested in making moral, righteous decisions? Or are we overcome by a crowd mentality and the input of a few religious leaders? The crowd 
was indifferent to justice. That is the rewarding of good and the punishment of evil. Notice verses 21 and 22. The governor again said to them, which two of you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? How can you morally justify this? Why would you want to see the evil set free and the moral be punished? How can you overlook? How can you reward unrighteousness? How can you elevate unrighteousness to the place where you're going to choose unrighteousness over moral justice? The crowd is morally indifferent to their own approaching judgment. Verse 24 and 25. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See it to yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us. His blood be on us. They don't care about the moral consequence of their actions. There is no fear of future judgment. Rather flippantly, they say, let his blood be on us. So today. You know, the world is not much different today than it was 2,000 years ago or from the beginning of time. Mankind is sinful. Mankind is morally corrupt. Mankind does not reward good and punish evil. And fallen mankind does not worry about future judgment. We hear people say such flippant things as, when I stand before God, I'm going to tell him a thing or two. Believe me, no one is going to stand before God and give them a, him a piece of their mind. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to glory of God the Father. No one will talk back. No one will justify their actions. No one will find fault with God. They will humbly bow and accept His judgment. And they will even be forced to recognize that it is just and right. How flippantly people speak of hell. And you hear people say that they want to party and be with their friends in eternity in hell. People, hell is no party. Hell is not a place to be with your friends. Hell is a place of eternal judgment, torment, agony. It is the most awful thing that one could conjure up in one's mind. And yet, how flippantly people speak concerning the judgment that's going to come upon themselves. Let it come. Let his blood be upon us. And then we have the crowd's moral indifference to the spiritual well-being of their own children. Verse 25. 
And all the people answered, His blood be on us, and then this, and on our children. On our children. Not only were they indifferent to the spiritual well-being for themselves, but they were indifferent to the spiritual well-being of their children. There are ways in which society is getting worse and worse. There are ways in which you can see a moral crumbling from what things used to be in a relatively near past. One of those differences is that oftentimes parents were not particularly concerned about their own spiritual well-being, but they were concerned about the spiritual well-being of their children. While they had no real interest in spiritual things, even non-Christians tend to thought that it would be good for their children to have some kind of religious training or experience. And out of that desire, in the 70s and 80s came the whole bus movement of churches sending buses around to pick up kids whose parents didn't want to come, but they were happy to, to send them off. Put them on a bus. We don't want to go, but it's good for them to go. And bus ministries were ever, everywhere. You know, bus ministries have dried up. Why? Because parents no longer even see the value of sending their children. In fact, they think that it might be harmful for them to come under religious training and teaching. They might become poisoned. Uh, they, they, they might become a cult. Better that they don't hear at all than to go to church. Some things have changed. And they're dramatic, even if we don't recognize their drama. You know, as things got worse and worse, television sitcoms moved from, you know, the, the kind of innocence of uh, Father Knows Best and Leave it to Beaver and all of those old shows, many of which had a moral ending to them, to the place where there's all kinds of moral indecency and decadency and suggestive things that, you know, you can't watch sitcoms anymore. And then it moved into commercials. And you had to be careful about the commercials you watched. And for a while, you know, the the powers that be were careful that during, you know, the 6 o'clock hour to 9 o'clock hour, the commercials were pretty decent and clean because kids would be watching and then it got more raunchy after the 9 o'clock hour. That's changed. But you know, it, it really saddened me. I had uh, uh, Amy and Caleb over to the house the other night. And I wanted to watch the evening news. And they came into the room... And I was wanted to watch the latest on the whole election controversy. And you know, I had to turn the TV off because I was afraid of what they were going to hear out of the mouth of people that are running for president. That's where we are now at. 
How does that happen? Moral indifference. Moral apathy. A lack of concern for what is truly holy and just and good. A rationalization. A moral indifference in making choices. Believe it or not, my point is not about the election this morning. I'm just using those as illustrations. Instead, I ask you this. First of all, who do you identify with this in, with, with the, who do you identify with in this story? As you think about this story, story being a truthful event, a truthful account, as you think about it, who are you most like? May I be so bold as to say, if you have not yet accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're most like the crowd. You are rejecting him. And I ask you, even as Pilate asked the crowd, why? Why? Why wouldn't you believe in Jesus? Why wouldn't you yield to his authority? Why wouldn't you recognize him as the righteous one? Why would you not say, I want Jesus to be my Lord and Savior? Where does that moral apathy come from? Where does that fearlessness of judgment come from? Where is the recognition that the choice I'm making not only governs me, but it governs my loved ones? There's a fallout to my choice. I plead with you this morning, if you've never accepted Christ, ask yourself why. Judgment is real. Hell exists. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need to place your faith in him. Or your end is not good. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, who should you identify with? Barabbas. Barabbas. We have all been set free by the death of the Lord Jesus. None of us deserve the salvation that we enjoy. None of us are worthy. None of us should be benefactors in Christ's death. Humanly speaking, he never should have died in your and my place. It's an amazing testimony to the spirit and love of Christ who went willingly to the cross. Pilate's amazed when he makes no defense. Barabbas is a picture of what takes place For all mankind, everyone is guilty. Pilate, Judas, the crowd, you, me. We're all responsible for Christ's death. History is silent about Barabbas. We have no inkling as to what happens to Barabbas after he is set free. But I ask you, what about us? 
after we have set, been set free. I would hope that Barabbas would have repented. I hope he would have changed. I hope he would have been incredibly grateful as Jesus hung upon that cross. I hope he said it should have been, it should have been me. I hope we say it should have been us. I hope we're tremendously grateful. I hope we say thank you, Lord, for being my Savior. I hope as a result that we will be willing to stand up against the crowd. As the crowd is getting louder and louder in our day, as the crowd is becoming more and more vocal in making poor choices, in choosing evil over good, that we will have the boldness to stand up and say, it's not right. I pray that God would give us the strength and the courage to stand up and say, we choose Christ. And may Christ be our choice for our family. May not his blood, but his grace be upon us and upon our children. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the work of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that the Son of God became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Lord, we recognize that there was a time in which we too rejected the Lord Jesus, but by your grace gave us the opportunity to repent. And many of us know the Lord Jesus is our Savior. I pray if there's anyone here this morning who has never yet placed their trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that today would be that day. Quickly, is there anyone here this morning that would like to make that profession, that would like to say, I want Jesus to be my Lord and my Savior? Would you quickly raise your hand just so I can acknowledge you? I'm not going to ask you to come forward or anything, but I just want to see that if there is anyone at all. Lord, I pray that we who know the Lord Jesus might see the injustice in Jesus dying in our place. But Lord, what mercy, what grace, what goodness, what love, what kindness that while we were yet sinners, that Christ would die for us. Oh, help us, Lord. Help us to rejoice and give thanks. And Lord, give us the boldness to stand up and identify with the name of Jesus. Help us to stand against evil and reward good. Help us, Lord, not to be indifferent to all of the immorality and of all of the lawlessness that we see around us. Oh, Lord, may we choose not to participate. And, Lord, may we not be silent in our voices. And certainly, Lord, may we not identify with the crowd. But instead, oh, Lord, may we always identify with Jesus, even though that's going to be in a minority position. Help us to choose Christ in all things, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.